Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. This podcast is brought to you by SavingYouTaxes.com and hosted by J. Barry Watts. As an advanced tax strategist and enrolled agent federally licensed by the IRS, Barry is uniquely qualified to go deeper into the Internal Revenue Code than most accountants. He understands and interprets its provisions explaining how they'll help you reduce income taxes you owe so you can direct that previously wasted tax money into tax-free accounts that you can enjoy in your retirement years. Now, on today's episode... Hello and welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. I'm Barry Watts, your host, and today we're going to talk about how to protect your investments and your retirement from risk. Now, on a previous edition, episode 23, in fact, we talked about how risk impacts your retirement, what a big deal risk is and why it matters. If you haven't listened to that podcast, you really should go back, uh, stop this episode and go back and listen to episode 23, because it is the setup to help you understand why protecting your investments and retirement from risk is so very important. Now, many people think that it's not even possible to protect your investments and your retirement from risk, that if you do that, you have to give up growth. Wait a minute, Barry. This is Patrice here, just jumping in. Why do people think that? Well, I think that maybe it's because they've just drank the Kool-Aid. And perhaps 20 or 25 years ago, that was true because the popular thinking a generation ago was that you had to embrace risk to make money. And the idea was that the more risk you take and were willing to accept, the greater your return might get. And if you didn't take any risk, then you didn't get any return. And while that was true to a point back then, because of advantages and advances, I really should say, in technology, we have tools and resources today that didn't exist even 10 years ago. And those tools and resources help us to build strategies that are resilient in the face of negative market headwinds and help us to read the markets with a high degree of probability and frequently, not 100% all the time, but frequently help us sidestep the bear when the markets come crashing down. What did you just say? What did you just say? Did I really not get that out? Uh, Negative market headwinds, probability, frequency, what? You say this simply. As simple as I can. I thought I got it right the first time, but I'll try again. When the market is going down, we have tools today that did not exist 10 years ago that will give us alarms, set off alarms, and tell us that it's time to step aside and avoid the down market when possible. Got it. And so that's the tool that we're going to talk about somewhat today as we help people understand how they can protect their investments and their retirement from risk. Now, the lawyers require us to say a few things that are important right here. First of all, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. And that's certainly true. Mm -hmm. All investment involves risk and could result in the loss of money. That's true, too. And so now that the lawyers are satisfied, let me just say to you today that we're going to talk about solutions that do work, strategies and methods that can greatly minimize risk, so much so that in some cases it can become practically irrelevant, the risk that is. So these aren't perfect solutions. They don't work exactly the same way every time. They aren't precise, so precise that your account never, ever goes down. But year over year, they demonstrate that you can invest in ways that either protect your principal entirely or reduce the risk significantly. And we can look back now and see that some of our risk reduction strategies work very well during times of market volatility. 
so that uh, clients didn't participate in most of the great bear markets, like back in 2000 through 2002 and in 2008 and uh, 2009. Okay, tell me this. Why is a bear market called a bear market? Well, thanks so much for asking. And this is one of the fun explanations I like to give. (laughs) You know, Patrice, that I own a livestock farm and on my livestock farm, I have cattle. And one of the things that happens when you get a bull pinned up kind of close and are trying to manage him in a way that he doesn't want to be managed is sometimes he will come charging at you. And Patrice, I doubt that you've ever been in the pen with a bull who was charging at you probably. No, no. But when he, when he comes at you, here's what he does. He lowers his head. And if he had horns, fortunately, my cattle don't have horns, but if he had horns, he lowers his head as if to scoop you up on top of those horns. So the way a bull fights, a bull is pushing things upward. And that's why we call it a bull market when the stock market is rising. Now, conversely, I have never been in the woods fighting with a bear, thankfully. But how do bears fight? Well, I'm led to understand that they stand up on their hind legs and they lift their bare arms high in the air and they come crashing down upon you. So bears fight by pressing down on you. Bulls fight by lifting up on you. And therefore, a bull market is a market that's rising, being lifted up. And a bear market is a market that's being pressed down. And that's the definition of a bull market and a bear market. And that was very well said. Well, very good. I'm glad we got that explanation (laughs) out correctly. Now, now a lot of people think that you can avoid a, a bear market by diversifying, that if you diversify your portfolio, you're protected from risk. And when people say that, they generally don't even understand what diversification is. In fact, I often run into people who think that diversification is having multiple investment accounts at different firms. But in Mm -hmm. fact, diversification Mm -hmm. is something tremendously different in that. Diversification involves having money in different asset classes. And the question that we're going to address right now is really, does diversification protect you from risk? When we talk about having money in different asset classes, for example, stocks are an asset class. Bonds are an asset class. But there aren't just one kind of stocks. There are domestic stocks and there are international stocks, two different asset classes. Mm -hmm. There are small companies and huge, gigantic companies whose stocks all trade on the same exchanges. And so we sort them by size and we have small companies, mid-sized companies and large companies. Those are all asset classes. But we aren't done yet. We then sort them by the type of company that they tend to be. Some companies are fast, hard-growing companies that are reinvesting all their earnings into the growth of the company. And conveniently, those are called growth companies. While others aren't growing so much, think of your electric utility company. They've had pretty much the same lines running across the country, serving generally the same customers every year for decades. Not a lot has changed. So a company like that, you don't buy it for future growth because the electric utility company probably isn't growing, but you buy it because it has a good stream of income that's being turned into dividends. And maybe the market has kind of forgotten that company because it's really kind of Mm -hmm. boring, frankly. And so the value of that company, the price of its stock has gone down and now it has value. 
at the auction. So that's called a value company. So there are growth companies and there are value companies. Then there are large growth companies and large value companies, small growth companies and small value companies, mid-sized growth companies and mid-sized value companies. Why am I not surprised? Why am I not surprised? Well, this is how we begin to break these companies apart into asset classes. So diversification is building a portfolio that has a lot of asset classes being used. But once we do that, we're really not even done because not only can you use those asset classes, but you can use sectors of the economy. For example, the S&P has uh, 11 different sectors like financials and industrials and energy, et cetera. And so diversification is taking your money and scattering it into these different asset classes and different sectors and hoping that you're protected because it's unlikely to have a crop failure in all of these sectors at the same time. That's the idea. Now, the question is, how does it work? Well, we go back to 2008 and 2009. You Not may a remember. good year. Yep, the Great Recession happened right. then. And let's just assume for a moment that you diversified into four broad asset classes. You took 25% of your money and you put it into really large companies. That would be the S&P 500. And you took 25% of your money and you put it into smaller companies. That would be the Russell 2000. And you put 25% of your money into technology. The NASDAQ mm-hmm. might have been the place that you went with that. And you put the other 25% in really large companies, that those that comprise the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So collectively, in those four different positions, you would actually be investing in the stocks of 2,630 different companies. Let me ask you a question, Patrice. Would you consider that diversified? Yes. Well, of course. How could you be more diversified than having your money scattered among 2,000 different companies? Now, remember, the question is, does diversification protect us from risk? So let's hear about the results in 2008 and 2009 when you had your money scattered in those 2,000 different companies in four broad asset classes. How did it work? Well, the S&P 500 asset class, which was large companies, lost 53%. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but maybe somebody else did fine. The small companies, that would be the Russell 2000, lost also 53%. The NASDAQ, that's the technology companies, lost 36%. And those big large companies we talked about in the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 48%. Diversification didn't get you much uh, there, did it? It didn't work. It didn't work. Diversification doesn't work to protect against systemic risk. And if we ever have a time where systemic risk could be embedded in the economy, I certainly think it's right now when we're printing all this money and giving all this money away and uh, doing all these stimulus kind of things. There's a tremendous amount of systemic risk in the economy. And so the point is, you can scatter your money among 2,630 different companies and call yourself diversified. And yet when a bear market comes, like it did in 2008, 2009, It hits everything you're invested in and everything you're invested in loses money. So diversification doesn't work to protect against systemic risk like that. So the question then becomes, what could have worked? Well, I'm so happy that you ask, in fact, because what follows are some strategies I'm going to talk about that can work. And these are strategies that I personally use to protect my own portfolio And that in my other life where I give investment advice, I sometimes recommend these strategies. Now, I'm not recommending them to you today because I don't know you personally and your situation specifically. But this will give our listeners an idea of tools and strategies that are available that I use to protect my 
uh, own accounts mm -hmm. and the clients whom I advise. And I think it'll be helpful to them to realize that these are available. Now, the most protected uh, technique that you can use, at least that most people think you can use when it comes to uh, making investment would be to put your money in a certificate of deposit. Wait, wait, wait. Certificates of deposit, CDs today, you're not getting anything. Well, that's exactly right. But grandpa taught me to do it and he didn't mention anything about the rate of return. So if grandpa thought it was a good idea, I'm probably going to go ahead and do that. And I run into this kind of thinking from time to time. Now, what you have to realize is back when grandpa was doing that and you were growing up and learning about it 30 years ago, perhaps those CDs might have been paying as much as 8%. Mm -hmm. And if you could get an 8% CD today, you'd be really thrilled. But the typical CD today is paying less than 1%. I know my dad just had a CD mature that had been paying him 2% and the credit union offered to renew it at one quarter of 1%. <laughs> oh, and that's when he said, yeah, I got to do something You're different. Really... Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you, you need to do something different. <laughs> and so CDs are just not that attractive. And let's talk for a moment about why though, that CDs are at these forever low rates. And the fact is, Let's talk about CDs and how CDs work for investors. Certificates of deposit are those old stogie uh, bank-oriented investment products that grandpa used to use. And the thing you have to remember is that in grandpa's day, uh, 30 years ago, a generation ago, those CDs might have been paying 8%. And that was pretty good money. But today, a CD pays less than 1%. I know my dad just had a, a CD mature that had been paying him a whopping 2%, which he thought was a good rate in light of where we're at in the economy right now. And the credit union, when the CD matured, the credit union offered to renew it at one quarter of 1%. Oh, don't tell me he went with that. No, he certainly didn't go with that, in fact. And by the way, that happened to be a uh, seven-figure CD. Oh, uh, my gosh. So, yeah. And so they're only willing oh. to pay a quarter of 1% on a million bucks. So CDs just aren't that attractive. And here's why they're not that attractive right now. It's because of what's going on in the marketplace. 30-year mortgages are down in the 2% range. You can borrow money for 30 years for 2%. That makes me want to go borrow some money and build houses or something like yeah. that. Your bank can actually borrow money from other banks through the Federal Reserve System at a current interest rate of one quarter of 1%. And so if they, banks can borrow from each other at one quarter of 1%, well, then why would they pay you, an investor, any more than that? That's why they were only willing to pay my dad one quarter of 1%. And so investors are really having to compete with the Federal Reserve, who's loaning money to banks at uh, a quarter of 1%, and that drives down the rates on CDs to nearly zero. So then we're just counting CDs out and not even going to well, go there? Well, most people just say, so scratch CDs off the list. That's not appropriate. But here's the good news. Patrice, have you ever heard of an equity-linked CD? No. I didn't figure you had because most people don't know about them. Today, you can invest in a certificate of deposit that's FDIC-insured. These are issued by some of the biggest national names in the banking industry. But instead of giving you a guaranteed interest rate, 2% for two years, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Instead, the bank ties your return to a stock market index like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the Dow or the Russell 2000 or a combination of all of those. And they'll say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay you a return based on how this index performs and we will guarantee you that your return will be no less than zero. So the worst you can do is you okay. just get your principal back. And then on the top side, they will cap it and say there will be a maximum amount of money that you can earn. 
I saw a CD a few weeks ago that was actually a six-year-long CD. It was FDIC insured, and it was going to pay that index that we talk about, whatever the performance was on that index, times four. So if the index at the end of that six years was up 20%, remember, it's a six-year period of time, so it's reasonable to think an index could grow 20% over six years. That's just a little over 3% per year. Wow. Well, if the index was up 20% at the end of that period of time, then the bank was going to multiply the return on that index by four. So the return on that CD would be 80% in a six-year period of time. Hey, I'm there. I'm there. F I'm FDIC there. insured. FDIC insured. Now, you understand that's not available today. I'm not telling you you should invest in that today. I'm just telling you about something that was available just a few weeks ago. So the point is CDs aren't dead. They've just changed their form. And most investors don't know about this change in form. So it's something that's important to consider. And in the fixed income side of someone's portfolio, we do use those kinds of CDs today. And someday, if interest rates ever get back to normal, we might use some regular CDs. Hmm. But right now we don't because there's just not any money left in regular CDs. Hey, if I've got to tie my money up for six years, but to get a return like that, I would think about it. Yeah, well, you're not tying all your money up for that period of time, Patrice. Think about it. You, do, you divide your money into buckets and brackets and you say, all right, this portion of my money, I can only tie up for three months because I'm going to need it come fall. But this portion of my money, I'm not going to need it until next year. And that portion of my money, I don't need it until the year after that. And there is some money that can be much longer than six years because, Patrice, you're going to live more than six years, aren't you? I hope so. Yeah, I, I would expect on that it. you I'm counting probably on it. will. And so some of that money you're never going to get to. So I remember when I first started in the business, I started with a company that in the financial business that used to have me walking the streets of the little town that I lived in, knocking on the doors, talking to people about interest rates and investments. That's literally how I started in the financial business. And I would go up and knock on the door of some of these people and uh, say, hey, you know, we've got a bond and the bond's paying this much interest. It's a really good bond. And I think you ought to consider it today. And, and people would say, well, how long is that bond? Oh, well, this is a 30-year bond. You're going to get interest at, you know, at 8% for 30 years. And, and they would look at me and what they would say is, well, Barry, at my age, I don't even buy green bananas <laughs> because they didn't think they were going to live long enough for their bananas to ripen. <laughs> now, the fact of the matter is some of your money needs to be long term money mm -hmm. because you have decades of life left and longer term money does tend to get us better returns over time. And when we look at a, a six-year CD for a portion of someone's money, we don't consider that tremendously long-term. It's just a slice of the overall pie that we are baking for that particular person. Someday we've got to talk about banana money. Yeah, that's a good idea. I don't even buy green bananas. <laughs> All right, so now let's move on. Let's talk about another tool that we use to protect people from risk. And this is a tool that when I mention the words, it's going to turn some people off because they have a preconceived notion of what it is. And I want to ask you, just listen, just listen. Don't be turned off right away. Let's talk about annuities. Let's talk about annuities. Now, people tend to view an annuity with a skeptical eye, and that's really too bad. You should not view annuities skeptically. You should view annuity salespeople skeptically. <laughs> because whatever bad reputation annuities have is because they were sold improperly and they were misrepresented by the insurance agent at the time of the transaction, often, I might add, for a substantial commission. 
And so here's a very simple explanation of an annuity. An annuity is just an investment contract with an insurance company. Insurance companies are highly regulated and they're historically considered to be very safe places to put money, maybe even safer than banks. So when you loan your money to an insurance company for a period of time, they'll pay you either a stated rate of interest, which right now would be really low, like that quarter of 1% that CDs are paying, or they'll design your contract so that your return is determined by the return on a stock market index, much like the CDs ah, that we just talked about. Yeah. And so using this kind of technique, we're seeing annuities that routinely return six or 7% per year. We've had much higher returns that than that. And we've said, seen some lower returns as well. But the point is, if you want safety of principle, annuities are considered one of the least risky investments out there. And we use them in our practice for a small portion of our overall portfolio. And so those are just a couple of the tools, annuities and CDs that we use on the fixed income side to protect principal. And most people have uh, kind of uh, swiped those off the table and said, well, those don't apply anymore because there's no interest rate on CDs. Well, we just proved right. that wrong. And they don't like annuities. It's because you don't understand them. It's not because they're a bad thing. They were just not explained well to you. So right. that's how we deal with the fixed income side. Now, Patrice, the more exciting side of most of our life as investors is on what we call the equity side. And equities are stocks and stock mutual funds and exchange traded funds and things like that. Investments where the investor actually owns a fraction of a business or a pool that has a fraction of the business invested in it. And so there's a tool that we use to help us with our equity business to know when we should be in and when we should be out, when we should be investing and when we should be withdrawing. And that tool is called the supply demand indicator. Okay. The supply demand, demand indicator. indicator. Now think about it for a moment. If a particular investment is in great demand, what happens to its price, Patrice? Goes up. Yeah, great demand. Yeah. You remember Cabbage Patch Kids? Oh, oh gosh. Age, didn't I? Hey, what about lumber right now? Well, hey, uh, thanks for bringing it a little more modern <laughs> times. Because a sheet of OSB, a four by eight sheet of OSB, which is like a big sheet of plywood, those pressed chip sheets of plywood that they use to wrap your house in, mm -hmm. um, those today are costing $50 a sheet. I've got a, a lumber yard executive as a client, and he was just telling me a couple of weeks ago, those are costing $50 a sheet. And two years ago, those were costing $5. A sheet. Oh, my gosh. And so demand has gone up greatly. And when demand goes up, price goes up. And by the same token, if uh, demand goes down, then what happens to price? Well, as long as the supply is still there, the price is going to go down. That's right. The price will go down. And so the way the supply-demand indicator works as it relates to investment, well, I like to illustrate it by talking about how we pick a restaurant for lunch. Let's say you and I are on a drive, Patrice. We're driving across the Midwest. And we're going through a small town at lunchtime. Now, how are we going to pick the best place to eat lunch? <laughs> there are several restaurant options. Which one will be the best restaurant for us to have lunch at? You would think the one that's more crowded. Yep. To figure that out, we're going to use the supply-demand indicator. We're going to look at the parking lot. Uh -huh. So if there are two restaurants across the road from each other, and one of them is crowded with pickup trucks and police cars... 
and the other one just has a small <laughs> smattering of cars, we're going to assume that the locals know where the best food is. Oh, yeah. And we're going to go where the crowd of cars tells us that the locals are going. We're going to have lunch where people in the know are demanding to have lunch. That's how the supply-demand indicator works. And so for every investment that is publicly traded, we can see what is called the size of the market. We can see how many sellers are offering their ownership up for sale and what they're asking for it. That's called the ask. And we can see how many buyers are offering to buy and what they're offering to pay. That's called the bid. We can see the bid and the ask. That's the prices and the size of the market. How many people are in line bidding and mm -hmm. how many people are in line trying to sell? And so if there are approximately the same number of buyers, bidders, and sellers, askers, then what does that mean for the market? Meh. Meh. Not much. Yeah. means it's going to stay kind of the same because there's a, a stasis, but that's a technical term. There's a stasis between the buyers and the sellers, the same amount of them. But when we begin to see a trend where there are consistently more buyers, the buy line is growing faster than the sell line. What that means is there is upward pressure on the price of an investment. And conversely, if the number of sellers increases and the number of buyers stays the same or decreases, it means the price of the investment is likely to experience downward pressure. Mm -hmm. And so these two things, the number of buyers and the number of sellers, kind of tell us what is the current trend for that investment. And all those numbers are available on every investment all the time. So we know whether that investment has particular pressure one way or another, and we can use those numbers to compare particular investments to each other. So let's say we're looking at a decision to invest in small company stocks, like we referred to earlier, the Russell 2000, or large company stocks, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Which one of those are we going to invest in? We can actually see which of those two has the greatest number of buyers in line, and we can make our decision about which one has the greatest upward pressure on price. The demand is greater for one company or another. And so what we want to do is wherever the demand is greatest, then we want to put our money in that line and let the growing numbers of buyers who are lining up behind us push and pressure our money higher. And by the same token, if we see the buy line shrinking and the sell line beginning to grow, we want to take our money out of the line and set it aside while the market is going down so we don't participate while the market is going. For example, right now on this broadcast, at this very moment, value-oriented companies are in greater demand than growth-oriented companies. And you'll remember our explanation. Mm -hmm. A growth-oriented company is a company that's got new technologies, new ideas, and the company is going to make its profits from its new ideas that it's going to bring to market. A value company doesn't have any new ideas. It's got an existing line of business. It's very profitable. It's paying out dividends, most likely. And the market has just kind of misjudged it temporarily. And it, it's boring, so they didn't pay attention. And the price just kind of drifted downward. And so right now, there is more demand for value-oriented companies than there are growth-oriented companies. And to take it even a step further right now, there is more demand for small companies than there is large companies. Now, by the time you listen to this podcast, that may be all different. That's where the market is today. So if we were building a portfolio today, we would build that portfolio around small-sized, value-oriented companies because that's where the demand line is greatest. 
Let me ask you this. If you see a demand line growing and you get in, are you too late to the party? Not as long as the demand line is continuing to grow. Now, obviously, it would have been better if you'd have been in the first one in line before the line started to grow. But you can't do that because the thing that told you to get in line in the first place was that the line was starting to grow. Mm -hmm. So detecting early that the line is starting to grow is very helpful. But the point is, if the demand line is growing and indications are it will continue to grow, then we want to go get in that particular line. And we're monitoring this on a daily basis so we know when these things tend to change and shift one way or another. In fact, this demand process, measuring the demand and supply lines, you could use it with the 11 sectors of the U.S. stock market. You know, those are uh, what? Energy, financials, healthcare, materials, real estate, technology, telecommunications, utilities, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, if we did that today, at the time of this recording, the supply-demand indicator would tell us that energy, financial, and real estate are higher demand positions, higher demand sectors than utilities, healthcare, or telecom. So the buy line is longer on energy, financial, and real estate. So we might add those companies to a portfolio we were building, and we might avoid healthcare and telecom today. And that's how we build the equity side. And then on the uh, fixed income side, we've already talked about that. Mm -hmm. But those supply-demand indicators would also tell us on the fixed income side whether we might want to be using some corporate bonds or whether we might want to be using United States Treasuries. And they tell us when to flip back and forth between those. And so we don't know when the listeners are going to be hearing this podcast, and they shouldn't rush out and make decisions based on what we've said about today's market conditions. What I'm trying to help them understand is just in concept how this works. And so 30 days from now, though the conditions may be different and different things may be in demand, the principles of investing in the areas where there is strongest demand and selling out or avoiding positions where there is more supply and less demand that's a strategy that will help to buffer volatility and will help to improve investment performance over time. All right. I know you've said that, you know, success in the past is no guarantee you're going to have success in the future. But how well has this worked? Well, you're absolutely true when you say past performance doesn't guarantee future results. But we can measure how this has worked over time and kind of begin to speak to that. And what we're really trying to do in doing this, Patrice, is we're trying to avoid losing principle, protecting our principles. So mm -hmm. you might remember, or you may not, so I'll remind you, that in the past 20 years, we've had four big bear markets. Now, why are they called bear markets, Patrice? Because the bear stands up and pushes everything down. Yeah, the bear stands up on his hind legs, airs, hands up in the air, and he attacks you by pressing down upon you. We've had four bear markets. In 2000 through 2002, uh, the S&P 500 lost 49%. Yeah. The supply-demand indicator, by the way, told us to get out on October 13th of 2000. Interesting. And it, didn't, it didn't allow us to get back in until March of 2003. So we missed nearly all of that negative 49% bear market in 2000 through 2002. Now, the next big bear came along as a precursor to the Great Reception in October of 2007 through March of 2009. The S&P 500 lost 56%. You, you said Great Reception. Uh, you're not welcome. Is the great you're not welcome. Let's call it the Great Recession. How about saying it that way this time? Good. So it was in October of 2007 when that started and went through March of 2009. 
And during the great reception, I'm sorry, I just kind of like it. Now I want to use it. During the great recession, the S&P 500 lost 56%. Now, here's the interesting thing. The supply-demand indicator told us to get out on January of 2008. And it didn't signal that it was time to get back in until May of 2009. So the the recession and the bear market was from October of 07 right. to March of 09. And in January of 08, the indicator said get out. And in May of 09, the indicator said it was safe to get back in. So we missed, again, most all of that negative 56% loss. And same thing happened um, in 2016 when we had the bear market there. We were able to sidestep that bear market and move to the sidelines. So, Patrice, this concept doesn't always work perfectly. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect. It's it's just a tool that we use. You know, you can go to the, the doctor and have an x-ray or an MRI, and the MRI isn't always perfect. It doesn't see everything. It could have missed a cell or something like that, a cancerous cell in your body that didn't show up. But it's pretty darn good, and I'm glad we've got those tools yeah. to help us. And, in fact, I'm glad that we have this tool to help us. Uh, you may remember in March of 2000, so a little over a year ago now, a year and a half ago, the stock market took a huge dip because COVID came to visit oh, us. That was a huge drop, yes. The market yes. just fell apart in February and March. And the indicators never, ever told us to get out. But that's okay, because what happened? <laughs> Immediately, the market bounced yes. back. And by May, we were pretty much back where we had been back in March. And we were hitting so what, new highs not shortly after that. That's exactly right. So the interesting thing is the indicator has got a line where it hits. And when it gets to a certain level, it sets off the alarm. Well, the market actually never got to that level. And so the thing I want you to realize is, can your account go down if you use these indicators? Oh, absolutely. And there have been negative seasons of several to, or I should say a few to several months uh, in length. But over uh, periods of time, this has worked very, very well. In spite, despite those negative seasons, this supply demand indicator tool has allowed investors to sidestep the negative market returns every year for 20 years, every year for 20 years, meaning that using this strategy for 20 years You've never experienced a negative market year. Every that, year has wound up being positive. That's pretty impressive. Well, it is pretty yeah. impressive. And what I tell you next is most impressive. During that time, it has produced double-digit returns. Yes, double very impressive. Very. Now, Patrice, here's the deal. It's too impressive. It's true. It's absolutely true. I can show you the math and show you the numbers. It's absolutely true. But it's so impressive that people flock to that kind of thing and say, oh, my goodness, this is great. That's absolutely what I want. And I, I think it might be absolutely what you want. But you just need to understand that I'm, I want to take away some of that euphoria that surrounds that and just say to you that it's not guaranteed. But historically, it has worked. And if the exact same things happen in the next 20 years as in the past 20 years, well, then an investor would likely experience results that would be extremely satisfactory and it would help to protect their investments mm -hmm. and their retirement from market risk. And that's what we are trying to do. So let's wrap this up. Let's go back kind of to where we started. Most people think you have to take the good with the bad and you don't have a choice. And if you want to enjoy stock market gains, you've got to hang around and participate in stock market losses and once you lose money in the market, it may take as many as five years to recover. 
And at the end of that five years, you're back to even. You haven't made anything. You're just back to even. Correct. That's right. Now, that's the old party line. And that story is really 200 years old. And while it was true, it's just no longer true. When I was trained in the investment business over a quarter of a century ago, in fact, we were taught that when someone lost money in an investment, we were to tell them that if they would just hang on a little longer, it would come back and they would recover. And then we'd put a little zinger on it by saying, you're in it for the long term, aren't you? <laughs> and the answer to that question, Patrice, is quite simply no. I'm in it until the supply demand indicator tells me to be out of it. And then I am out of it until the supply demand indicator tells me to be back in it. And that way I don't have to hang around and endure those losses all the way to the bottom and then wait until I climb back from the bottom to get back to where I was, which generally takes about five years mm -hmm. because today I've got early warning tools that will tell me when to be certain that I'm invested and when to be certain that I'm not invested. And you mix those tools in, with a little bit of annuities, like we talked about, or maybe some of those FDIC-insured CDs. And that's how you protect investments in retirement from risk of loss due to stock market volatility. Now, if you're interested in learning more about these concepts, then reach out to me by going to our website at savingyoutaxes.com, and I'll take off my tax strategy hat, and I'll put on my investment advice hat, and uh, I'll show you using tools that we have through an investment advisory that when I'm working in that capacity, we use those tools to help protect clients to protect their investments and their retirement from risk. And while you're over there on the website at savingyoutaxes.com, you can be sure and click the green button in the upper right-hand corner of the page that says, listen to our podcast. And it'll take you to a catalog of all of our podcasts where you can pick the topics of interest to you and listen to the ones that you want. And then if there is someone you think this podcast will help, I hope you'll go to the bottom of your podcast app where you're listening right now and that you'll click share and that you'll send this episode to someone that you think will find it beneficial. For savingyoutaxes.com, I'm Barry Watts, the host of The Truth About Taxes and Retirement, reminding you this time that even if you got the taxes right, but you fail to understand risk and learn to protect yourself and your retirement against risk, then nothing else is going to matter. I'll see you soon on the next edition of The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. Today's edition of The Truth About Taxes and Retirement has included specific information about stock market investing that requires us to remind you that all investment involves risk and you could lose money. Today's information has been provided without any warranty of any kind. Historical returns should be considered hypothetical. Past performance never guarantees future results. Before investing, you should talk with the qualified advisor of your choosing to make certain a strategy you are considering is appropriate for your risk tolerance, goals, and objectives. Thank you for listening to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement Podcast. 
Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of SavingYouTaxes.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your own qualified advisor with any questions you may have regarding taxes and investing.